when I was a student in college. It was my first pitch competition ever. And I show up and I literally forgot my name. Hey guys, it's Taylor, your host. Welcome to Girl Gaze's second season and the very first IGTV series, Resilience Required. As we continue to navigate through these crazy times, I want to play a part in curing your Sunday scaries with a panel of refreshingly relatable and inspirationally insightful girl gazers. You guys know that when I first started Girl Gaze back in November, I invited those who I admired to come on And now with this panel, I'm able to connect those I admire. And better yet, share our candid conversations with you. This week, I am so genuinely excited to introduce you to three amazing, ambitious, hardworking female entrepreneurs in their 20s, two of whom were included in 2020's Forbes 30 Under 30 list. And we are talking all things entrepreneurship and starting your own business. You don't want to miss this one. Before we get started, I just want to remind you guys that this episode is sponsored by Mixology, which is one of my favorite clothing stores. And I think now more than ever, it's really important to support small businesses. So go check them out. It's at Shop Mixology. And be sure to use my code, GirlGaze15, for 15% off. So first, we have Danny Egna, the 27-year-old CEO and founder behind Inked by Danny, who received a Ford's 30 under 30 recognition. Why don't you kick us off with a little introduction of yourself and your company? Yeah, of course. First, thank you, of course, so much for having me. Very excited to be here. Um, my name is Danny Agna. I grew up in Long Island, New York. Um, went to USC to study fine arts. I have been an artist really my entire life. Um, always really into drawing and painting. And it was during my senior year of college there that I founded my company, Inked by Danny. We make um, elevated, more fashion-forward temporary tattoos that all are inspired from my hand-drawn designs. And fast forward, I guess, five years. Crazy, it's it's been that long. But um, fast forward five years, we're now sold in yeah, stores all around the world. Um, and yeah, have really built just an awesome brand of, of wearable art. Um, we love to inspire self-expression without the commitment. Um, or if you know, you're like me and just a total scaredy cat, know your parents will kill you if you get a real tattoo. Um, you get to feel cool for the day or for people who are, you know, super into tattoos and excited to test out their next placement, their next size, their next design. Um, We kind of, you know, allow everyone, all ages, styles, personalities to join in on the tattoo fun. Love that. Allie Kriegsman, you just turned 28. You were also included in the Forbes 30 under 30 list. You're the co-founder and COO of the Dope Company Bulletin, and you have a book called How to Build a Goddamn Empire on the Way. No big deal. <laughs> just, just hyping you up a little. Tell us a little bit about yourself and Bolton. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, I didn't just turn 28. I'm turning a ripe old 29 this year. <laughs> 
in just a few months. Um, but yeah, nice to meet everyone. Thanks for listening. My name's Allie Kriegsman. Um, I'm the co-founder and COO of Bulletin, which we started uh, similar to Danny, I guess, about five years ago now. Um, Bulletin is a retail technology platform that makes it super easy and straightforward for brands to expand their offline presence. Um, we invite thousands and thousands of retailers to our platform um, to discover the coolest emerging brands and order inventory from those brands straight to their retail stores. Danny is actually one of the brands on our platform. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I was actually born in New York and my family moved to California when I was about nine months old. Um, I grew up watching Sex and the City and coming back to New York. My whole extended family's here. Um, and as soon as I graduated, I knew that I had my heart set on moving to the Big Apple. And I've been here ever since then. Um, my book is coming out next year. I also just found out it's officially getting turned into an audiobook, So you can read it or listen to it. Um, April 2021. So in about a year from now. Um, and yeah, I'm super passionate about empowering and supporting small businesses. Um, my mom is an entrepreneur. I grew up with her uh, building and scaling various small businesses. Um, throughout my childhood and my teenage years. Um, and yeah, just really interested in building more straightforward and affordable solutions uh, to kind of deal with the complex and expensive and convoluted processes that brands usually have to go through to scale. Amazing. And Julia Haber, my fellow Syracuse alum. So you're 23, launched Wave, and now you're launching a new company called Home From College very soon. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and both of your business ventures? Yeah. Um, thank you so much for having me. My name is Julia Haber. I think I caught the entrepreneurial bug very early um, and was lucky enough to go to Newhouse at Syracuse, which was an amazing platform to learn and try and compete in pitch competitions and figure out what was good and what worked and, and really just iterated and tested and built um, my first company called Wave, which is an experiential agency with a consumer-facing brand specifically for the college market, um, basically building and deploying custom pop-up activations on college campuses. So we have relationships with about 55 universities across the country where we can get on campus, um, and we really translate the brand story to resonate with college students. And I've spent a lot of time learning from students and spending too much time on different college campuses and realize that there is a lot of opportunity there to kind of support that overarching experience and make it very relevant and beneficial um, as sometimes the university experience has not been changed um, frequently. So in the process of launching my second venture, Home From College, which was inspired by the events that happen, are happening in the world with COVID and realizing that now more than ever, college students are more vulnerable and isolated and not supported in their future and realized that if we could find a way to create a brand that was trusted by students, providing actionable insights and information that can help inspire their futures while giving them opportunities to meet each other virtually and digitally um, would really be beneficial. So Home From College is going to be a digital platform launching on May 1st, which will curate um, dozens of videos by industry leaders and trendsetters across the world and country to tell their story and create actionable goals for students while developing programs, mentorship programs, short-term internships, and a bunch of other projects um, all under the Home From College umbrella. So 
spending a lot of hours doing that, a lot of designer bags under my eyes and a lot of NARS concealer. So <laughs> I'm excited that you have used this um, opportunity to pivot your business under a different umbrella. And now I'm curious if, you know, Danny, you want to kick us off? Have you pivoted your business strategy since working from home? And what does your new work from home situation look like? Yeah, I definitely, um, <laughs> it's definitely an adjustment. We, um, you know, built the brand relying very heavily on retailers. So, um, you know, we're lucky that a couple of them have remained open, but I would say majority of our retailers that we sell to, um, are closed. I mean, that being said, their online businesses are up and running, but it's definitely, um, pushed us to pivot on, you know, creating, um, you know, as much business as we can direct, you know, direct to consumer through our own website, which, um, you know, has always been a focus, but never really my main focus. So this is kind of, I think my silver lining is this is giving me that push to really spend time to focus on that. Um, we've been really looking, um, into kind of alternative retail experiences. So like subscription boxes, um, self-care beauty is having a huge moment right now. Beauty was obviously having a huge moment before, but I think, you know, feel good products and especially our item, it's like an at-home activity. So it's kind of, um, that perfect, you know, it's a low price point. It's fun for all ages. So, um, there's definitely, I think, a really special purpose for, for what we're doing, um, you know, shifting to really promote all of our inspirational words and phrases. People are finding um, all those positive messages, even if it's just a little temporary tattoo. It's sometimes just those little things that can put a smile on your face for the day. So, um, yeah, really shifting on working on, you know, influencer marketing, digital ad marketing, all of those things were, you know, on my to-do list, but, you know, having our retailers kind of take a bit of a back, not a backseat, but they're closed and that, you know, those efforts are kind of on pause for the moment. It's given me the time to focus on that. So it's been really exciting. And yeah, I think, um, definitely a great, a great shift and a, and a ton of opportunity there. What about you, Allie? Yeah. So, I mean, everything Danny is, is speaking to about, um, the way that COVID-19 has impacted the retail industry, um, totally resonates with me and what we're seeing. Um, you know, we run a wholesale marketplace and so our whole business is contingent on retailers coming to our site and ordering, uh, new inventory from new brands or reordering inventory from brands. They, you know, already know and love um, to sell in either their brick and mortar locations, their online uh, retail sites or their subscription boxes. Um, and so it's, it's been a rough time. Um, I'll, I'll be candid about that. We launched the wholesale marketplace in September of last year. Um, we were on a really exciting, you know, steady climb into March, um, hitting all of our numbers and really expanding our retailer and brand communities. Um, and to Danny's point, you know, it just is what it is. Um, in early March, uh, you know, these stay-at-home orders went out, um, the market tanked, and I think for many retailers, they were forced to shut their doors because they're non-essential businesses. Um, and then for other retailers, even if they are open, or to Danny's point, if they're still fulfilling online orders, uh, they're in a holding pattern. So they're trying to sell off the inventory that they already have, um, not necessarily order, you know, new inventory. We are seeing the categories that Danny mentioned 
um, pick up in sales as of two weeks ago. So like beauty, wellness, um, pantry, the things that are really relevant to an at-home experience are still selling pretty well. Um, but you know, we have a really large contingency of apparel brands and jewelry brands and footwear and things that, um, you know, have just, have just stalled. And so we've kind of pivoted in a few different ways. I would say the first one is we immediately launched a consumer facing campaign called support the stores. Um, we realized that a lot of our retailers are closed and they're either relying exclusively on their online sales or Instagram selling, um, or they're launching their online stores for the first time and they need our help getting consumer sales. So we basically created a giant directory organized by state of the different retailers in our network that are still fulfilling online orders and blasted it to all of our email lists, blasted it on social. And the call to action is basically, you know, don't just go to Amazon to order the skincare and wellness, you know, or home entertainment uh, goods that you need, really consider ordering from these indie retailers instead. Because in many cases, the products are actually higher quality and will get to you within a few days. These retailers are doing, you know, comped expedited shipping. Um, so go to bulletin.co slash support the stores. Um, you can find the list of all those really cool retailers, many of them that sell Danny's products. Um, so that was one way. And I think the second way is to Danny's point too, just really trying to build our online retailer community and subscription box community. Um, we immediately had to ask ourselves, you know, as these brick and mortar stores are closed, who is going to keep ordering inventory? Um, and so really making sure that we're reaching out to those retailers and trying to get them on board uh, to use Bulletin. But it's been a really tricky time. Um, we've pivoted all of our brand facing like marketing emails, all of our retailer emails to just reach resources and things that can support them. So, you know, we sent an email recently that was like, Hey, retailers and brands, like are your emails getting in the primary inbox? You're relying so heavily on online sales these days. And a lot of these retailers haven't focused on email deliverability because online has been secondary uh, and email marketing has been secondary to just running their physical spaces. So we've really pivoted into trying to be really resourceful, sharing those resources with our brand and retailers, um, you know, driving consumer sales for these retailers and then, um, you know, making sure that we're inviting retailers that are still ordering to connect with an order from our brands. Yeah. I mean, I love how all of you guys are taking this as a challenge and, you know, you are rising above and totally figuring out how to deal with COVID. I'd love to jump back to the beginning. Danny. I love the story of how you created your business in your college dorm. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, of course, of course. Um, so at USC, pretty much every night there was a different themed party. I don't, I don't know why we were just never dressed in regular clothes, but this was another night of a themed party, which I'm sure you guys are very familiar with from where you guys all went to school. But um, the theme, there was, yeah, themed party. And I, um, we all got dressed up. All my friends were like, oh, Danny, you know, you're, you're the artist. Like, can you draw something cool on us for the party tonight? I was like, all right, sure. So I just grabbed a liquid eyeliner, um, doodled kind of all these crazy designs on my friends, on their faces. And they came back at the end of the night and they were like, every single person who saw us were like, 
wow, those are the sickest tattoos. Where'd you get them? And they're like, no, they're, they're not tattoos, Danny. Just eyeliner. <laughs> with eyeliner. And it was kind of in that moment that a huge light bulb went off my head. I was like, okay, wait, I'm seeing a huge trend in temporary tattoos. No one's really taking an art driven, sophisticated approach to this. That's kind of an interesting idea. I've always wanted like a cute little minimal dainty tattoo. Again, like I said before, my parents would absolutely kill me if I got a real one. And I was like, okay, so many girls must be in that same conflict. Why doesn't anyone make just really simple, um, chic temporary tattoos? Um, So yeah, kind of set off to take, like I said before, um, like a hand-drawn approach. So everything starts with a pencil drawing and kind of sketched a very small, like 10 initial designs, Um, you know, got some samples and honestly was like, all right, like it's my senior year of college. Like this kind of sounds fun. Truly didn't even set out to actually make this like a full on business. I was just kind of setting up in sororities and setting up little tattoo bars and selling them and we created an Instagram, um, kind of just cause it was fun and <laughs> we all wanted something to do. And, um, it just really took off from there. So it kind of, you know, made the decision for me on, okay, you're starting this. <laughs> um, we were just getting, you know, tons of orders to our online site. We had retailers reaching out to me when I was yes, yeah, sitting like in my room <laughs> in my house in college senior year. Um, and there was such a demand for the product that I don't even think that I realized. So kind of having it take off so early while I was still in school um, was kind of the like kick in the butt that I needed to actually take that leap of faith. Kind of, you know, the world made the decision for me. I like to say people always ask, well, how'd you decide to like really just go for it? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I didn't decide. Like I almost had no, <laughs> like no choice, um, which is so lucky. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the beginning part of it. Um, even when I was still in college, I, um, you know, realized that, that retail was like really the, the way to go. And for me, the, the way that I saw really scaling the business. So, um, yeah, we got into stores like Nasty Gal and Brandy Melville, um, American Eagle had reached out all, all before I even graduated. That's amazing. And I love how it first started with passion. And I feel like that's, that's the main factor to being successful as an entrepreneur is fully believing in what you're creating and the mission behind it. Um, Julia, how did you turn your idea into a reality? Oh my God. So it was really a journey. Um, I felt very lucky to have a great support system in college. And if if you're listening to this as a college student, I highly recommend you just kind of pick your brain um, and think about what you are passionate about and just utilize the resources all around you because never in your life will you have a support system like that. Um, And I really did that senior year. Someone gave me that advice to really look around and say, you have a big opportunity to just make the world your oyster. And I utilized my mentors and advisors who were um, on campus who said, you know, there is an opportunity that I identified, which was that the college infrastructure and system on campuses that are more remote in the middle of nowhere, um, 
tier three, tier four cities that are like the Ithaca, New York or Syracuse or North Carolina don't have a ton going on around them and that the universities don't always do the best job to provide an infrastructure that can support outside the classroom learning and took a lot of those insights and said, I love experiences. I think nothing is more important than in-person connections. And I think all of us kind of feel that way as well. Um, And that there really is a chance to make it customized for the college market and build a brand that people feel themselves identifying with. So I competed in a million pitch competitions, forgot my name, didn't know my financial statements, all of the things that you need to learn and have a nice nice safety net of in college. And I won um, enough pitch competition funding to really kick off uh, my business. And I started it full-time right when I graduated college. Like Danny said, it wasn't really a choice. Um, I saw the response from students and we quickly just identified a brand that people resonated with. And we have about 65,000 students who are part of the WAVE community that have just really given us um, an ability to understand what they want and need. And I spent a lot of time driving all over the country, going to campuses and connecting with students and learning what I didn't know and assembling really powerful people around me who were able to open doors and be really supportive um, and talk to anybody and everybody I could and pick their brain and learn. And lucky enough, I fell, I picked myself up and did it a couple more times and learned and iterated. But um, definitely had those moments where we didn't know if it was going to continue to survive based off of things that you could never predict. Like we had a 40 foot trailer sink into the quad at Syracuse um, two hours before our pop-up was supposed to go live and had like six tow trucks calling me at three in the morning to try to pull out the trailer, things that no one tells you how to do. Um, so definitely resilience was key to make this happen. So Yes, resilience, just like the title of this. <laughs> So Allie, I know that you also applied, you know, to pitch competitions and the difference between your story and both Julia and Danny's is that when you started Bolton, you had a full time job and a stable job. When did you know that you wanted to make your side hustle your main hustle? Yeah, that was a very hard decision for me. I college experience really informed uh, the fact that I was desperate for a lot of stability and financial stability after graduating. So my parents divorced while I was in college and my uh, parents ran a business together. And so the business just completely fell apart. Um, My mom was unemployed. I basically put myself through school working multiple jobs. Um, My mom and I just like doing everything we could just to get me to graduation. Um, And it was just really stressful. I really had to experience a lot of like showed a lot of resilience and taught myself a lot of resilience through that. Um, Feeling like a fish out of water, feeling really embarrassed about my financial position. Um, And so when I graduated, I was dead set on getting like the most stable job possible. I actually ended up accepting an offer at an asset management firm um, for $60,000 a year. And that to me was like, oh my God, like I couldn't even imagine making $60,000 a year. I was making like $11 an hour. Um, And I ended up 
accepting the job. And then two weeks later, I reneged on the offer. I remember standing on a roof and calling the HR woman that had hired me and being like, you know what? I'm a creative person. This will give me the financial stability that I am really craving. And, you know, I'm sure the work experience will be above and beyond fabulous, but like, this isn't for me. Um, And there was just a voice inside me saying like, you know, if you really lead with passion, as you were saying, um, and kind of let that guide you, like you'll land on your feet. It may not be immediately. Um, but I think that I wanted that to be my guiding light. So I ended up getting my first job out of school, um, at Condé Nast. I was an assistant. I was making $30,000 a year. So literally half the offer that I had walked away from. And I was babysitting every weekend. And it was really tough. I ended up leaving Condé Nast and getting a a job in sales at a content marketing company. And I went from making $30,000 a year. Within a year and a half, my tax return uh, stated that I had made like $120,000 a year and a half later. So I had like really radically increased my salary. And I was working at this content marketing company, which is where I met my business partner. I was 24. It was just this very like stable um, kind of cocoon and this financial stability that I had really been lacking for so many years. But again, that light kind of went off and I realized like, okay, I'm on this path. I was the number one salesperson at Contently. I was like, I can either keep going with this and like become a director of sales and a VP of sales and then go be a VP of sales at Facebook or a bigger tech company. Um, And I was like, that path just doesn't feel like me. In my book, I kind of talk about the decision between like staying with sales or or starting Bulletin is like, I I wouldn't have been building the right me or the right version of me had I stayed in sales. So in, in starting Bulletin with Alana, it was a passion project. It was a pure side hustle. We launched at the end of 2014 or early 2015. Um, We just squirreled away our free time and worked on it when we could. But it was really hard for me to walk away from that salary. Um, The reason I I eventually did was because we received a $20,000 grant. Between my savings and that $20,000 check, I felt like, you know, I could take the risk and sacrifice that financial stability to, to build the right me. I love that. And I love how all of you kind of veered left when everyone was going right, because that takes courage. Did you ever experience a fear of failure because you were taking a huge risk? I will tell a quick story. So at the end of 2018, when we were working on this big pivot, um, we it was a financially stressful time for the company. Um, we were just in a big state of flux. Um, we were overwhelmed running three stores and I literally became so consumed with this idea that like the marketplace wouldn't work. The pivot wouldn't work. Bulletin would just shut, suddenly disappear. And I, I felt like I was going to be so embarrassed and so ashamed. Like I, I literally would wake up every morning and play on repeat. Like this is what's going to happen. Like in two months, the company's going to disappear. Like the technology build is not going to work. The company's going to fall apart. I'm going to have to fire my whole team. Um, and I got, uh, like hurt, I got like herpes on my fingers. Like I literally had a physiological reaction to this stress. Um, my hair started falling out. Like I was very consumed by this fear of failure. But I think what I learned from that is you actually don't know what's going to happen. Like the platform ended up getting built and it's fine. And like the bit, you know, and, and I think from like having that fear fully consume me and then being on the other side of it and just realizing like, 
I woke up every day and just showed ounces of resilience along the way. I'm like, it turned out completely different and much better than I had anticipated. Um, I think a lot of fear of failure comes from anticipating a future that you can't predict, but assuming for whatever reason, because of imposter syndrome or previous experiences, that it that it's going to turn out wrong. So that that was a, a really dark time for me, and I still deal with those types of feelings. Julia, what about you? Yeah, I mean, that's I totally relate to that story where you physiologically feel like your body's breaking down because you can't handle that feeling anymore. I think there have been times in my journey where I've actually felt like I didn't know how to breathe. Not that I was like claustrophobic or having a panic attack, but that I didn't know what taking a deep breath felt like again, because I was so anxious about what could happen and what would happen. I was for the past seven months building a different company that was very reliant on a non-COVID world where people were connecting in person. And for Wave, I hadn't raised any money. So I hadn't experienced the the trauma of fundraising um, and the stress that it puts on your body and speaking to 50, 100 people, you know, for a month and feeling like you're taking on everybody's criticism and feedback and discounting you and not understanding who you are and having, you know, really not a sense of who you are behind your story um, was took a really big toll on me. Um, and more than ever, I realized that the world is not in your control. And if you give up that control, then you just let the world run its course because I think we all are, are leaders and, and, and creators and, and innovative people. But at the end of the day, I think this time right now during COVID just tells you that there's only so much you can control in life and set up a plan and follow that path. And at the end of the day, something else is going to come up. Um, so having that resilience and ability to pick yourself up and know that failure actually isn't necessarily failure unless you are classifying it as a failure. I think I just heard that in how I built this podcast um, with the founder of Birchbox. And she was saying that I was never afraid to fail because I didn't classify anything I did as a failure. And that was just such a liberating piece of advice that I heard because you're the only one that's looking in on yourself and, and classifying that. So if you have the ability to set yourself free and just say, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and it'll work itself out easier said than done, but it's an important lesson to try to integrate. Yeah. I love that. And I love that quote that you just said, because failures also can turn into major lessons that then, you know, you grow from there and then it pushes you to a different space that you may have never gotten to if you never experienced that. Danny, I'm curious if you can recall an early failure that has now turned into a major lesson for you. Yeah, definitely. I think when, as I was kind of speaking to before early, when I was still in college, um, kind of making that first shift to just from us selling, you know, on site, you know, at sorority houses um, or selling online, kind of making that shift into retail. Um, and we kind of had to jump in, I think a little quicker than I was ready because we were seeing so much demand from retailers. Um, and of course, realizing these are awesome opportunities was like, okay, let's get something together. Um, so kind of struggling to take that from like a direct to consumer to actually a product that was retail ready. So, um, that, 
first, I think, failure of throwing together some sort of product packaging was a huge lesson for me. Really made me realize that like the product packaging, how the customer sees the product in the store, um, the customer experience, um, just everything about how it's displayed to the customer is just as important, if not more important than the product itself, um, especially in a retail setting and especially as a essentially unknown business to everyone when we were just starting off. That's what, you know, captures the customer's attention that at the end of the day is what's going to make the sale. So <laughs> we really threw something together. I look back at it and absolutely can't help but laugh. Um, it didn't even say temporary tattoos on it. It was just truly, truly what I look at as a failure. Um, but it taught me that huge, huge lesson. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that for me was like a huge eye-opening experience. And again, like if I hadn't really just jumped into it and just actually lived through that experience, I don't think I would have learned that lesson. Yeah. I also think another huge lesson to learn is one that you don't necessarily learn in a classroom setting at college that you all have seemed to come to master. And that is the skill of pitching yourself and your company. Can any of you recall a specific meeting with major investors or partners and walk us through that moment? Maybe Julia, you want to kick it off? So I'm going to share two really quickly. One is when I was a student in college, it was my first pitch competition ever. I have the worst rote memory in the whole world. So for some reason, I thought it was a great idea to memorize my whole pitch, which was horrific because I got up there and I'm not a stage fright person. I speak in front of panels all the time. I have no anxiety about that. So I was like, I'll be fine. I'm not even worried. And I show up and I literally forgot my name. Like I have never done that before. I can still remember the feeling. I just <laughs> It was so traumatic. And today, um, one of my advisors, who I'm still very close to, who happened to be in that room at that same time, um, we celebrate it. It's April 13th. Um, it is National Julia Forgot Her Name Day for the competition <sighs> because it was such a growth moment for me. I literally remember downloading Headspace and lying in my dorm room being like, how can I like manage my anxiety about this? And it was such a great learning experience because it really surprised me. And that was something that I didn't expect. Um, and it taught me every day to prepare for things, even when you think you're ready for them and that it's totally fine to mess up and start over. Um, and you know, forget your name and laugh about it and then move on with your life. And in fast forwarding to today's world where I have been pitching to a million and a half investors and, really going into rooms as a 23, almost 24 year old female founder, solo founder by herself with tons of men, um, you know, compartmentalizing every aspect of who I am and really thinking about how to tell a story concisely and hit on emotional points that people connect to and show who you are as a person, because that's the most meaningful thing. And I would say if there's one piece of advice I could give is spend the first five minutes of every meeting trying to be a human first and not pitch your story because no one wants to hear anything. Um, if you get on a call or you're in a room and you just start talking about yourself and spewing your idea, you have to make it relevant to the person in front of you. So 
I would highly recommend doing that. And even any conversation you have, pitch competition or not, um, just analyzing the person who's in front of you and making sure that it's what they want to hear um, and not just your spiel. Yeah, I love that. And I find it so interesting that you have pitched to rooms full of men and that's, that's intimidating. I'm wondering if either Allie or Danny have also um, experienced that. Allie, you want to go ahead and tell us about your experience? What was going through your mind? I So I experienced this a lot when I was at Contently. So I already had the experience before, you know, starting Bulletin and pitching venture firms and angel investors and things like that. And I'm so thankful for that. Um, I, you know, got promoted really quickly at Contently. I started out as a sales strategist, uh, working for a sales executive. And so I was doing a lot of the grunt work and not actually taking cold calls or doing calls. And then that executive ended up getting fired six months in and they kind of just like slotted me into an ad hoc executive role. And I was like 23 or 24, similar age to you, Julia. Um, and they put me on uh, the mid-market and startup tech vertical. So they literally had me as a 24-year-old, like little blonde baby, like going to these tech companies and being like, hey, you should be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars with our company every year. Um, and I remember one specific pitch where I was, I, I mean, I was alone for most of them, but I was alone and it was a room of eight men. All of them were over the age of 40. Um, and I always dressed very like conservatively and like more adult than I actually was. I have like a little baby face. I remember I had a teacher in high school who told me that any, like when I built my empire, um, whenever that was that I should wear glasses to all of my meetings. So I always wore glasses. Um, and so I remember sitting in that room and just immediately getting really intimidated by, this like visage. I was like, Oh my God, they're like all these old guys and I'm alone and they're not going to take me seriously. But then I just was like, I had this surge of confidence where I was like, I want to leave this room blowing their mind that like, I'm that bitch. Like I'm the woman that's in here. I'm like young and I'm hungry and I'm going to get them to agree to this deal. And I ended up closing the deal a few weeks later. Um, and I think that experience really informed uh, the fundraising experience for me and Alana. I think we've seen every meeting like a battle or like a challenge that we want to win. So rather than going in feeling intimidated or scared or less than, we are merely like, okay, we know there's a hill to climb. Like we know that we are young. We know that we're both women. We know that we're both non-technical. Um, what is it going to take to get them from A to Z? Like, what does that middle look like? So we're, we're both very strategic. We kind of play completely different roles in the meeting. Um, we both, you know, play up our different strengths and we really just approach it like a game. It, as weird as that sounds, like I think what Julia said about really focusing on the person that you're pitching to and what is going to get them to where you need them to be is, is the best way to think about it because then you're action oriented and you're constantly digging and questioning and trying to get incisive about like the way you're going to phrase something or position something, or even just the energy you're going to bring to the conversation versus going in with a intimidated or scared mindset. You're inherently in this like 
passive role where you're just receiving what's coming at you and you don't feel empowered to have like an active moment of like shifting them or changing their direction. Um, the, t- the advice that I would give that I think has worked really well for us is you are in control of the conversation. If you put yourself in control of the conversation, if they're bringing something up that you don't want to address, or if they're asking you a question, you don't know, it's totally fine. If you do it with confidence to be like, you know what, that's a really great question. I'll follow up with that follow up on that with you later. I was super excited to share with you like this metric or, you know, I really think you're not um, focusing enough on the fact that we X, Y, Z. So I think it's like, just take the reins. Um, And I feel like it really has more of an impact when younger women do it because it seems so unfortunately unexpected. Yeah. I love that. Danny, what do you think it takes to sell yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, I think everything you guys said is, is super spot on. Um, we haven't done any fundraising, but for us, we do a ton of trade shows across the country, which is basically like speed dating for buyers. You're standing at your booth. People are coming by every few minutes and you have a very short amount of time to not only capture their attention. Um, and again, most people are walking by, have never heard of you, haven't heard of the product. Maybe they weren't even planning on stopping. Um, so, you know, learning how to, you know, Julia, what you were saying kind of first started with, you know, being personable, really friendly, you know, you don't want to come off too strong, too salesy. It's kind of finding that, um, you know, in between spot where, um, you know, you're intriguing someone to come check it out. And then, you know, in a very short amount of time, really, you know, concisely conveying, why your product is cool, why your product is different, um, and why it relates to, you know, what their mission, what their project is, um, again, in a, in a very short amount of time. So, um, I think that that, um, has been something that I've gotten better at for sure. Um, I think in the beginning I did go into these things really nervous, but, um, after doing it for so many years at this point, um, you know, I go in and I know that there's, you know, nothing that I can't answer. There's nothing that, you know, I'm not excited, um, you know, to do or share or explain and so confident in, you know, when people just take a minute to look at the product and try it on and get all tatted up, um, you know, seeing that reaction and seeing how people fall in love with it, it, is like inspiring and so encouraging to, to always push me to go forward. So, um, yeah, I think that's kind of been my experience. We've all the time had people come by our booth and been like, what are like, you're so young. Like, what are you, what are you doing working this trade show booth? I guess thinking I'm like, I, I don't know, like 12 or something, but, um, yeah, again, as soon as you kind of open your mouth and they hear you, you know, talk to your business and hear how, you know, passionate you are and, um, you know, meeting me being the artist and kind of sharing my inspiration behind everything. Um, it's definitely, um, yeah, been, been a a big learning curve for me, but, um, it's now like one of my favorite parts of, of what I get to do. Yeah, totally. I agree that, you know, confidence is key. And I know that I come from an editorial background, so it's a little different than what you guys have been touching upon. But whenever I go into, you know, if I'm interviewing someone or even this panel, I'm not going to lie, like I was a little nervous this morning because I just, I'm a perfectionist at heart and I always want everything to go super, super well. But, you know, you just have to go with it and 
give it your all. And I really just think, you know, at the end of the day, however it goes, that kind of is out of your control as long as you do as much planning as you can uh, when you first start. But I mean, there's only so much planning that you can do. And this brings me to another topic of even when I first started Girl Gaze, I was trying to do so much research and so much planning. And then I was realizing this is taking too long. Like I can, there are so many things that I haven't, that I have yet to learn. So I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to start this and then I'm going to learn along the way. Have you guys ever experienced anything like that? What about you, Allie? Definitely. I mean, our business has evolved in so many different winding ways since we first started. And I think a big lesson for me has been just removing ego as much as possible from the equation. Like, I think the reason that people are so uh, afraid to just get started and do that, you know, crazy level of preparation and planning and competitive analysis is because they want to protect themselves against negative feedback or failure, as we've been talking about, or, you know, having this thing that they're so excited about launching, like not reach its potential. Um, but the reality is like a launch, I always say is more, um, is more important and holds more weight to the person launching than the receivers. Like anytime we've launched something, it doesn't just take off the next day. Like it's very rare. I mean, Danny, it seems like you had a very, uh, you know, fast pace to where you are now. And like the product just resonated with so many people so quickly. Um, and it, but in a lot of cases, like it is kind of a slower grind and it does take a lot of fine tuning and evolving and pivoting and, uh, talking to your customers and receiving critical feedback and constructive feedback to get it to the place that it needs to be. Um, so I think when you remove ego from it and you really just focus on like getting it out the door and then being really open and like free spirited and, uh, I don't know, eager when it comes to asking people what they think, getting their feedback, like using your Google analytics or e-commerce analytics, whatever you're launching, like measure, measure, measure everything. Um, I think once you do that, you realize like it's, you don't need to do that level of, of preparation. Um, and you are going to really figure out like who your customer is and what your perfect messaging is and what your sweet spot is once you're actually out in the wild and like doing that practice of trial and error. Um, but yeah, even with like, I just launched an IGTV series myself and we launched it like in just a few days and kind of cobbled it together. And my manager was like giving me some pushback on the format or was like questioning the format. And I was like, you know what, let's just do this format and see what happens. And like, if we end up changing it after the second or third video, or it doesn't perform how we want it to, it's like, who fucking cares? Like, I'm proud of putting it out there and the content will be good. You know, it may not be edited perfectly, but we'll get there. So I've really tried to apply it in other parts of my life, but definitely relate to that anxiety around like being an uber perfectionist and just wanting it to like go perfectly once it's out the door. Julia, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think I relate to that as well. Um, for me, I am a planner to an extent, but I am such a doer potentially to a fault where I don't like to sit and postulate and write a business plan. I honestly don't even think I've ever written a formal business plan because I don't have the attention span for it. Um, and I think that knowing that about myself was the first step in understanding 
how to learn and grow um, because I know that my business partner will do a killer job at it and that my highest and best use is completely something else. And I think learning that quickly and knowing that I'm not going to do X, Y, Z, but I am going to do this really well and the world will be really forgiving if I, you know, change the editing format or we launch with a name that people don't like. But being, I think, I think what Ali said that I really relate to is being humble and kind of honest with yourself about what you know and what you don't know, but be really willing to actually take the feedback because I feel like the most successful people are able to pivot because their egos aren't so big that they're bruised when somebody says they don't like something. And for me, I started wave because I was a college student. I was the target demographic and I'm very much not that anymore. And I know that it's super important to have people around you who can give you advice based on things you may not know anymore. So every week we do focus groups with 480 different students from different perspectives who have ripped things we've done apart that have made it so much better for us to say, you know, we're, we're catching it before we're investing time and money in something that won't work. So having that ability to be open to take feedback and actually take it and apply it has been one of the best lessons that I've learned. What about you, Danny? Yeah, I totally agree with you guys. I see so often people just getting so anxious and overthinking every little detail that it just completely paralyzes them from even launching. And I'm like, you can't know what's right and you can't learn until you actually just go and do it. So my advice is, of course, you know, to Ali, what you're saying, you know, you've, you've done your research, you've done your metrics, you've done your competitive analysis, you know, feeling like you've got a good, good base and a good mission to what you're doing, but just go and learn as you go. Like there's nothing that can compare to actually experiencing it and doing it. Um, so for sure, like not to hold yourself back by waiting until you feel things are perfect because a, It'll never be perfect and you won't know until you're actually out there doing it. So definitely on the same page as you guys. I love everything you guys have said so far. And I know that we've been offering little tidbits of advice throughout, but I would love to close the panel out with any advice that you think we haven't touched upon yet to girls who may want to start something but haven't yet. Allie, you want to kick us off? Yes, I think that one of the biggest gifts that Alana, my business partner and co-founder ever gave me without her even knowing it um, was that she really helped me expand my sense of myself. I never saw myself as an entrepreneur or as a potential entrepreneur. I never saw myself as someone that could uh, collaborate on building a brand. Um, I never really saw myself as someone that could define the brand voice of, of a brand or of a business. And she she just acted with me like, of course I could. Like it wasn't even a conversation. The way that she just like deferred to me and elevated me and gave me responsibility and, you know, the way that we held each other accountable um, just really expanded my sense of self. I, call, I coined a term in my book called potential dysmorphia, um, where basically like you as a person kind of see yourself in the future and you project yourself maybe like a rung or two rungs or like three rungs ahead of where you are now. Like I always thought, oh, I'm just going to be like a VP of marketing somewhere. But I never thought in my wildest dreams that I could build something alongside someone else, raise venture funding, um, you know, build a technology platform. And I really feel like her energy and just the way that she spoke to me and treated me 
uh, killed my potential dysmorphia and completely expanded like where I saw myself going in the future. If you want to start something, if you want to build something, um, don't just think of like the tiniest, you know, most basic infantile version of it. Think of what it looks like down the road and how big and exciting it could be if you put all your heart and effort to it. Julia. I'm obsessed with potential dysmorphia. That's the most amazing term I've ever heard. Thank you. So good. I love that. I want to use it in my life. Um, I echo everything you say. I felt the same way. I've been a a female single founder for Wave, um, and I have an amazing business partner now who has done the same thing for me, and it is just like the most liberating feeling, so I relate to that. Um, Separate note, my piece of advice would be that I've always kind of operated that no is not an option. Um, and to an extent it's exhausting to feel like that because you continue to forge a path that maybe is a dead end. Um, and that's okay. And I think it gives, teaches you resilience. And this year more than ever, I've learned that no is actually a gift sometimes. Um, and no is the definitive answer sometimes. And, knowing that that's okay is great and knows also super empowering because it's really great information to tell you what's working, what's not working. And a direct example of that is what's going on with this world with COVID. Like as much as I would have wanted to build my other business and I thought that it would be a really big success come January, 2021, the world said no. And there was no going around that. No, it was very much like (laughs) stay inside your bedroom. So for me, it's been liberating to teach myself that no just means pivot. Um, And no doesn't need to be as heavy of a definitive no, but it can be um, an alternative path that we should consider because it's really an important piece of information to know as you move forward. I totally agree with that. Um, Going off of that, when I was in college at Syracuse, I founded this magazine called University Girl. Julia, you may remember it. And I remember when I first pitched it to the club advisor people, they said no at first. And no one really knows that, but it was totally shut down because they thought it was too similar to a different magazine on campus, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, but I didn't take that as a no. My mom told me, all no's are actually maybes. And, you know, it pushes you further. And I think you really learn a lot about yourself and it pushes you to formulate your idea in a more specific way and kind of pivot the story that you're, that you're selling. I mean, even going back to selling yourself. Um, and I think from that moment, the brand grew on its own until eventually it was a yes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I love that piece of advice. Danny, what about you? Yeah, no, I can totally relate to that as well. Um, we've definitely, you know, gotten those no's, I think inherently like revamping a product that already exists. People already have like a ton of preconceived notions. So kind of using that hurdle to just have to really show them what we're doing and why it's different. Um, like I even remember telling my parents, like I'm starting a temporary tattoo company. They're like, no, like what are you talking about? Temporary <laughs> tattoos. And I'm like, just you wait. I promise. Like I just so saw the vision. So that kind of leads, I think, into my advice where like, if you're going to start something, don't 
you know, starting something because you see a gap in the market or you see like a niche in something that could be better developed, like that's an awesome reason. But I think being so incredibly passionate about what you're doing, I think that is really the true key to success. Obviously, you guys know just how all consuming and like trying this <laughs> entrepreneurial life can be. And if you are not like so unbelievably passionate and so see like, that big picture and that dream. And like, if you don't have that fuel, I think, you know, you could really get torn down. Um, and I don't, yeah, I think that that's just super, super important to have when you're starting something. I totally agree with you. Before we head out, I always like to end with a gaze goal of the week. And this is a realistic self-care goal for the upcoming week. My episodes are released on Sundays and I know we're in quarantine, so all the days kind of mesh together, but I feel like starting the week off on a positive note and setting a realistic self-care goal for yourself and, you know, putting yourself first is super motivational, but also attainable. So I would love to go around and just want to know what your self-care goal for the week is. Allie. So my bath doesn't work right now. Like my shower is super messed up. Um, so I can't take baths and baths are like very important to me, like centering myself and just like getting, I don't know, my, my headspace in the right place. Um, and so my self-care goal is to go to the hardware store and get a bath stop since it, I can't have my super come fix it and plug up my bath when I want to and when I need to, so I can take my baths again. Cause it's been all quarantine bath free, unacceptable. That is my goal. <laughs> it's gonna happen. <laughs> I love that. Julia, what about you? I've been implementing this and I've taken a little bit of a break and I need to do this more. Um, is every morning I usually get ready and start my day by listening to a podcast. And it's usually a variation of how I built this um, and something that has like aspirational elements to it. And I've now been pushing myself to... I don't know if this is considered self-care, but self-awareness is to listen to podcasts that do not interest me um, and that are in totally different categories of what I don't know um, and really learn potentially areas of finance that I'm not familiar with or push myself to explore different hobbies that I don't consider are in my consideration set. But um, iterate off of the theme that I can easily fall into, which is also what's going on with the world right now, just having your same routine. So I think every day, if you have the ability or once a week to just push yourself to try something new um, within the walls of your bedroom, that would be, that would be my self-care goal for everybody and for myself. Love that. What about you, Danny? My self-care goal, I think even just from the beginning of, of being in quarantine, was to find more time than usual to draw. Mm -hmm. um, that is my favorite thing to do. It's like what I find most relaxing. Like people like, you know, a nice bath at the end of the day or reading a good book. Like for me, that's just sitting down and drawing. Um, 
And yeah, unfortunately, with obviously the, the craziness of running your own business, I don't get as much time to do that as I would like, as much time to come up with, you know, new design ideas. Um, so that has been a huge goal of mine. I think I've been accomplishing that been spending most of my weekends just doing as much uh, drawing and I'm hoping to get in a little painting as well. Um, so that's such a treat for me. I love that. And my ideas goal is to do two virtual workouts this week with friends because I feel like that's just such a great way to stay connected with them, but also it's a motivator and it holds me accountable to actually like get my endorphins up. And if I wake up and I'm kind of in a funk and then I do a workout, it actually makes me feel so much more, it just, it, it boosts my mood always. And when I have a friend doing it with me, I'm like, all right, we're struggling through this together and we'll be sore together. <laughs> I highly recommend Camps Fit if you've ever done it. Have you done it? I haven't. I'll yeah. try. Camps, K-A-M-P-S Fit. They are like, I think they have two studios. They're in um, Wisconsin and Miami. They're like very small, but Barry's Bootcamp-esque. Yeah. And they they just blew up because they're 50 minute zoom workouts and each workout they do at like four times a day they're free and they have like upwards of 300 people in the class and it's so awesome to like go through the scroll screen and see like 300 people doing the same workout with you all over the world and they're just like small entrepreneurs who just started this boutique fitness company so highly recommend three times a day. <laughs> I'm going to do that. Not three times a day, but, oh, but they have them three times a day. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, I just wanted to thank you for letting me connect all of you guys and have this meaningful conversation. I've really enjoyed listening to you all and kind of, you know, planning all of this. And I'm super excited to share this with all of my listeners and IGTV you know, that new venture that I'm going down. So thank you guys. Thank you. This was so thank fabulous. Too. This was like actually one of the, I think most helpful and insightful digital events I've done in the past few weeks, just hearing from you, Danny and Julia, it was really awesome. And just so impressed with both of you. You too. It was awesome. Thank you for introducing us all. And we'll definitely connect offline, but it's great to have like a space to talk about this stuff. So thank you for doing this. Yes. Thank you, Taylor. Um, this was so much fun. Loved hearing from you guys. Um, and yeah, hopefully we can all connect soon. This was, this was great. Thank you again. And thank you guys for tuning in. And I really, really hope that this new season, season two, episode one of Girl Gaze's Resilience Required, kind of serves as a bit of inspiration for the rest of quarantine and has a positive impact on your life. And if you feel that way, feel free to leave a five-star written review. I'm so curious to hear your thoughts. And make sure to check out at Girl Gaze Pod and me at Taylor Bradford for a behind-the-scenes look at this new series I'm creating. All right, guys. I'll see you next time.